This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Do you ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we're three clinical psychologists. Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mentioned in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Debbie Sorensen from Psychologists Off the Clock, and today I'm going to be interviewing Feather Burkauer from Parenting Safe Children. She's an expert on childhood sexual abuse prevention, and she's an educator and co-author of the book Off Limits, A Parent's Guide to Keeping Kids Safe from Sexual Abuse, which she co-authored with with Dr. Sandy Wortley. Did I say that right? Okay, great. And this month is, and this is an especially timely topic for this month. This is April is Childhood Child Abuse Prevention Month, and so that makes this topic, I think, extra timely, and it's always very important. So I'm really delighted that Feather is joining me today. Um, and just a little quick background on Feather. Um, Feather Burkauer is a licensed clinical social worker in Colorado, and she has a Master's of Social Welfare degree from the University of California at Berkeley, and she's been a leader in child sexual abuse prevention since 1985, and she's the founder of the organization Parenting Safe Children, Um, and she uses a community-based approach and has trained over 100,000 school children, parents, and professionals across the country, and she teaches this really wonderful and popular workshop, mostly in the Denver area called Parenting Safe Children, and that's about empowering adults to help keep children safe from sexual abuse. And that's actually how I learned about Feather's work. I went to a workshop that she taught at my daughter's preschool in Denver, and I was just really blown away by her presentation, by the information, um, and by Feather's passion for this topic. And I felt really inspired after going to the workshop that I wanted to do as much as I can to educate parents and caregivers about this topic. So I'm extremely grateful that she has agreed to be interviewed for our podcast. So Feather, thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be with you today. Yeah. And just to let people know, so in addition to the book, which is really great, and if you're in the Denver metro area, the in-person workshops, I mean, I really would encourage people to go if they happen to be in the Denver area um, because they're really fantastic. Um, and you can find out about the calendar for the workshops on her website, which is www.parentingsafechildren.com, and I'd highly recommend going. Um, and for people who live outside the Denver metro area, she actually has a web-based workshop online as well, and it's at that same website, um, parentingsafechildren.com. So let's jump in, Feather. Um, tell us maybe just some background information about the prevalence of childhood sexual abuse. Okay, well, I guess I can start by saying one child is too many. 
right? Um, I can share some of the statistics and some of the research, but I believe that one child is too many. What we know from reported cases and research that approximately, and this really depends on the study that you're reading, but approximately one in three girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused by the time they're 18. So if you take girls and boys together, somewhere around one in 10. Um, and again, I believe one's too many. Yeah. That, those are the numbers we have. It's really striking to me just how prevalent. Yep, but there's, the good news is there's lots of things we can do about it, which is what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, the good news. That is good news, and I'm, that's, again, why I just think it's so important to spread the word on this. Um, are there any particular children who are most vulnerable? Well, actually, all children are vulnerable to sexual abuse. When a child is born into this world because they're small and powerless, they're vulnerable to sex abuse. And that's regardless of race, ethnicity, their age, religion, socioeconomic status. Um, so all kids are vulnerable. However, there are some particular vulnerabilities that sexual abusers may look for in kids. And the most significant one that I like to share with parents is uh, kids who don't have adults with a large presence in their lives or who are absent from their lives. So those kids whose parents are not necessarily directly involved or just don't have this emotional and physical presence. That doesn't mean that kids who do have that presence from their parents aren't vulnerable, but that's one of the things that abusers look for. And then some other vulnerabilities include um, kids who spend a lot of time alone or who may be unattached to adults or their peers or kids whose parents don't listen to them or don't believe them. Um, kids, another big one is kids who, whose parents expect them to obey authority without exception. And most of us want kids to follow rules and behave and do what we tell them to do. But, and that's all acceptable and good, but kids also really need to know that there are exceptions to following rules. And the exception is that they never ever have to do anything that another child or a teen or adult tells them to do if it compromises their safety in any way or it's about touching genitals. Mm -hmm. But so often we, you know, we teach kids, do it, do what your grandfather says, do what the teacher says, and, and most of the time kids should do what the teacher says, except, and that's where conversations can come in that parents can have with kids. Listen to the teacher, except you know, mm -hmm. if, if the teacher or the babysitter or whomever it is breaks your body safety rules. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one other that I really want to mention that sometimes is left out is that, that children with physical and intellectual disabilities are about four times more likely to be sexually abused. And that's not because of their disability. It's usually because they're in the care of so many more adults mm -hmm. and boundaries aren't set. And also because we often leave sexual education out with kids with disabilities because we don't think they can learn it. So that's what makes them more vulnerable to sex abuse. Mm -hmm. yeah. hard, and then hard I think, to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it is. Um, and then one other that I really do want to mention is kids who aren't educated about their own bodies and about correct terminology for genitals and 
where discussions about age-appropriate sex development are absent in the home. So that's a summary of some of the vulnerabilities okay. that sexual abusers may look for in kids. Okay. Hope and, that helps. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I think, a nice background to kind of lay down what you're going to talk to us about in a few minutes in terms of some of the things that, that parents can do because it gives you an, a window into what what not to um, do and what, to, what people might be looking for. And I know when you taught the workshop, you mentioned that you had a lot of information about the the abusers, the people who perpetrate the sexual abuse against children. And so I was wondering if you could tell people a little bit about the traits and who parents and caregivers should be watching out for. Okay. So I kind of want to reframe just a little bit the, the approach to quote, unquote, watch out for. Mm-hmm. Um, only okay. because, yeah, no, just because in my presentations, in my work, I like to try my best to make people as comfortable with this really uncomfortable topic as possible. Yeah. And, you know, when we think of watching out for, there's kind of a paranoid kind of um, feel to that. And people already say, oh, if I come learn about child sex abuse, am I going to feel more paranoid? And, you know, I can't answer that for people, but what I can say is I'm going to teach you the facts and then you hopefully will feel empowered to know what the signs are and what the behaviors are in people who abuse. So, you know, people who sexually abuse children don't wear a sign across their head that says, I am a sexual abuser. And we can't identify that way. But what we can do is look for behaviors in children, in teens, and in in adults who may be acting out sexually because most of the time there are signs. And the first thing that people really need to understand is that anyone at all can sexually abuse a child, and most people don't know that about a third to a half of all child sex abuse is committed by youth. Um, And so most of the time we think of this as, like, quote, unquote, the dirty old man, which is a myth that doesn't really keep kids safe, Mm -hmm. because up to a half of all abuse is committed by kids. And... Most of the time, almost always, the person who sexually abuses a child is someone the child and the parent already know and trust. Mm-hmm. And that includes parents themselves as offenders, other family members, friends of the family, school personnel like administrators or coaches or teachers, uh, faith leaders, nannies and babysitters, coaches, on and on. Mm-hmm. Anyone can do this to a child, and both male and females sexually abuse kids. Well, I think that's so important, especially the piece about how it's usually someone that's known and trusted. It's not some scary monster or stranger person. A lot of times it's someone that you, um, you know, are familiar with. Right, right. Yeah. And when, you know, when parents, you know, have this fear about, teaching these things to kids, and they say things like, you know, I've already covered the stranger danger stuff. You know, that's a Mm -hmm. a really big mess. Mm -hmm. That's great that we talk to kids about people they don't know, but the truth is stranger, quote, unquote, stranger danger education is really difficult to teach kids, and it's disproportionate with the reality Mm -hmm. of how this crime happens. Mm -hmm. It's almost Mm -hmm. never a stranger. It's almost always somebody right there in the child's life. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the typical pattern of sexual abuse? How do the abusers um, get groom the children or get into this situation? 
we like to call that, or I like to talk about that as access. Mm-hmm. So how does someone who sexually abuses a child, either a teen or an adult, gain access? And how do they, how does sexual abuse happen? How, you know, how does this relationship get built? And so I'll just kind of give you, Debbie, like a, a really brief overview of, you know, you called it grooming. And for, for people who might be listening who don't know what grooming is, it really is a friendship building process with the goal of securing trust um, from the child and from the, the adults around the child. And it's a time to find out what the emotional needs of the child are. What's, what, what is the child maybe missing so I could provide it for that child? And there's usually um, a process that happens over time, like months to years even sometimes. and. I think it's important for people to know that not every child who is sexually abused is groomed. It can be a crime of opportunity. It can be where someone, you know, a child is with a new babysitter or at a play date or at a camp the very first time and is sexually touched. But more often than not, there's this process with stages over time. And, again, you know, the first one is usually the friendship building, getting the kids to feel close and connected and indebted to the person. And then sometimes, it, often, not sometimes, often, it moves to rewards, giving the kids things they want, getting the child to feel excited about the relationship and really indebted to that person. Things like uh, toys or money or love and attention is often given because a lot of times kids don't feel attended to who are abused candy, dolls, whatever it is the child wants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's so interesting is I've spent a lot of time talking to sex offenders so I can learn and, you know, pick their brains about how they do what they do. And one of the themes that I have um, come away with each and every time is rewards. That, you know, when you give a kid something they want, they, they tend to stick around. So that's usually the second stage of grooming, and it doesn't always go in this exact order, but I'm giving you a general sense here. Well, and can I just jump in before you move on to the next point to to thank you on behalf of all parents for doing that kind of research by interviewing people, because that I feel like that just takes a lot of courage, but people have learned so much from people in your field and yourself doing that, so thank you. You're welcome. You're so welcome, and you know... Sometimes people will say, how do you sit and talk to sex offenders? And, you know, the truth is I really do believe, Debbie, that until we understand that side of it, until we start um, or until we stop demonizing Mm -hmm. people who abuse, and I'm not justifying their behaviors whatsoever. I'm as sickened by it as everyone listening. But until we stop demonizing, I don't think we'll be able to prevent it. Yeah, we need to understand it. We do, because yeah. people who sexually abuse children much of the time don't want to be doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Their histories are such that, I mean, there's a whole sense of, you know, history that's gone on prior to them acting out on a child. Again, not to justify it, but it's just so important. And I, I find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, offenders often want to talk, talk, talk. Yeah. And they really, they've told me, please share what I'm sharing with you with parents because we want parents to keep their kids safe. Yeah. So, 
So then a couple of more parts of the grooming would include keeping secrets with kids. You know, abuse can't take place, sexual abuse can't take place unless there's a secret. And so what um, teen and adult offenders might do is test a child to see if they'll keep a secret or not. So a child who won't keep a secret is usually less vulnerable. But a child who will keep a secret is somebody the person might continue to build a friendship with. And I really do want to um, make, make a statement here to kind of say that just because you teach your child that we don't have secrets in this family or you've discussed secrets with kids doesn't mean that your child will necessarily tell you mm-hmm. if someone asks them to keep an unsafe secret. Because the very nature of the dynamics of sexual abuse are such that most kids don't tell. And that's the truth. And actually, that goes back to the one in three and one in six. Those are based on reports. Most kids will never tell when they're being sexually abused. Even if you teach your kids, we don't have secrets. Mm -hmm. Um, We still need to teach kids that. We don't have secrets. And I'll get into the body safety rules a little bit later in our conversation. But the person is looking for the kid to keep these secrets. Kids who are taught we don't have secrets, have a better chance of telling, especially if parents are checking in with kids and the conversation stays alive in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, but once a person believes that a child will keep a secret about, let, let me give you an example. So the babysitter comes and says, um, let's have an extra bowl of ice cream tonight, or let's have a bowl of ice cream, but don't tell your parents because I'll get in trouble and so will you. But it's okay, let's eat it anyway. What kid wouldn't want that ice cream, Mm -hmm. right? And that feels really fun and really special. And most kids will eat it, and most kids won't tell. And once this person knows the child won't tell, they can escalate the secret keeping to more serious secrets. But if the kid tells the first time, hey, Debbie, your child says, you know, Mom, babysitter says let's eat ice cream and not to tell and then you address it with the babysitter does the babysitter now know this child is talking mm-hmm. right That's and right. that makes the kid less vulnerable and that person that sitter might not even come back so there's a testing period of secret keeping usually and sometimes what offenders have told me they don't even overtly ask for secrets it's understood in mm-hmm. their relationship you know, we don't tell anyone about this. This is our special time. So that's another part of grooming. And once the person believes the child will keep a secret and they have this special isolated relationship, usually the touching will begin. And what I've found most fascinating talking to offenders is that touching usually begins with less sexualized touching you know, where there's a pattern, and this is the key here, there's a pattern of and often an obsession with things like tickling and wrestling and roughhousing and piggyback rides and bouncing on knees and where there's an overall touchy-feely part to the, the relationship. Even when the child resists, you know, or the parents try to set a boundary or the child feels uncomfortable. And... These people that I've spoken to really, they clearly share that they are looking for adults around the child to set a boundary. So, go ahead. Oh, well, well they, so they'll sometimes even be doing that with 
the parent or adult right around when this Absolutely. is actually happening. Yeah, Absolutely. and just seeing if the yeah. parent will say something. Right. Remember, these are people in our own family. Yeah, yeah. So in-laws and cousins and just friends. And so if you're having a holiday gathering and someone is grooming your child and there's all this tickling and this this roughhousing and there's something in your gut and your belly that feels off off about it and you just you don't like it and you don't you have a sense about it but you don't say anything because you tell me why do you think most people won't say anything i think they're afraid they'll hurt the feelings of the person that's doing the tickling that it's a family member and they're they're worried oh that you're going to falsely accuse them or make them mad or upset exactly or you're overreacting and they'll put it back on you and when I talk about this with abusers, they tell me they're purposefully looking for that adult who will or will not set the boundary. And when, if and when adults do set the boundary, like, you know, in our family we don't have tickling, just something as simple as that. Not, are you a sexual abuser or right. are you perpetrating my child? But, hey, in our family we keep doors open when we play. Mm-hmm. Where a boundary is set, that typically deters abusers. Okay, so there's no promise for this. Yes, there are abusers who will push further. Yes, that's true. But most of the time, abusers are very weak and scared, and and they're timid inside, and they're looking for the boundary to be set. So if they just know that the parent's paying attention and willing to speak up, that's probably a big piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. So what I believe from studying this and learning and talking to offenders and meeting so many survivors is that each and every one of us as adults has a responsibility, you know, to protect kids from sex abuse, that it's not a child's responsibility to protect him or herself. It's ours to do it. And when we don't speak up, when we see this, or if we feel uncomfortable with the way a a person is behaving with children, we are part of the problem. Now, I'm not blaming us. We we didn't perpetrate, right? But we are part of continuing to, you know, to perpetuate that abuse. What I'm really saying here is that each one of us has a responsibility to speak up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my my workshops, I really help parents see how to do that in a proactive way before the tickling even happens. You know, so this is the grooming process. Once the person feels, you know, no boundary is set, they move on to the sexual touch, and that's where, you know, genitals are touched and, there's criminal activity that occurs where, you know, can be devastating for kids for life. Mm-hmm. Children can and do heal. They're so resilient. Many children who have been sexually abused, you know, go on to live productive, happy, fulfilling, loving lives. Not everyone is doomed at all. Right. But <laughs> there are lasting effects. There's no doubt because it interrupts development. Yeah. Yeah. Does this give you a sense of the process? Yeah, definitely. That's I think that's really helpful for people to kind of have an idea of that because it's not necessarily what you think of. Again, we think of this, oh, be afraid of strangers, and right. and this is very different from that. And that was a, when I did the workshop with you a few months ago, I was very, you know, I learned a lot about by listening to you talk about that because it wasn't necessarily what I would have thought as the typical pattern. And, yeah. oh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was going to say, you know, I'm just – I'm going to put this out there because I imagine some listeners might be thinking here because I get this question asked a lot. So is grooming really that intentional? And 
do, do perpetrators really intentionally build these friendships and go through this process? And the answer is yes. Mm. You know, it is so intentional. It's, it's very manipulative, and it's well thought out. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that every single person grooms a child who abuses, but the grooming process is methodical and intentional. Well, and from a parent's perspective, if you see anything like that, it may or may not be leading to sexual abuse, but it's worth having a slightly uncomfortable conversation just as a potentially preventative measure. So um, just if that kind of behavior is going on in front of you, you know what to look for. I love that you're saying that because we're going to talk about that, how yeah. those conversations, yeah. And so that's, that's a great segue into, and, and I really, again, would encourage people to do your workshop in Denver if you're not in Denver, the web-based workshop to learn about this more in depth and to actually practice this. But just for the purposes of the conversation today, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the steps. You know, you've mentioned a couple of things, but what kind of things can parents do to reduce the odds? Um, yeah, of this happening to yeah, a kid right. in their care. Yeah, so that's really where we put all this into practice. So I'd say that first it's important for um, every parent to put child sexual abuse prevention on their radar. When you have a baby, it's your responsibility to learn about this. Just like you learn how to buckle your child into the car seat before you put your child in the car, and you learn about helmet safety and bike safety and water safety and um, first aid and all the ways that you take care of and protect your child. That body safety, child sex abuse, however you want to label it, it's just one more part of parenting and one more part of protection. So that comes, you know, with learning the facts. Put it on your radar. Learn the facts. Learn just by listening learn. to this um, podcast is a starting place for those Absolutely. who haven't learned about this before. Yeah. Right. There's books out. There's podcasts. There's books. There's seminars of mine and other people's. I mean, put... Find out about what you can do as a parent. So put mm -hmm. it on your radar, and not just like a one-time class, but as a style of parenting. You know, commit to keeping this alive and um, fresh in your life. Mm -hmm. Then the other two really um, significant things parents can do is teach body safety rules to children, having conversations with kids about sexual abuse, and having conversations with caregivers. So I guess we can, we can start with the body safety rules for kids, even though I want to preface that with what I said a minute ago, which is that adults are responsible for protecting kids from sex abuse, that children can learn protection skills. It's important for them to learn body safety rules. However, ultimately, it's up to us to protect them not for them to have to walk around in the world thinking about sex abuse and protecting themselves. Right. This is not a right. responsibility of a child, ultimately, right. to be right. right. Yeah. So I think what I'll do is just share with you some of the body safety rules parents can teach, and then we can follow that up with, okay, what's most important is how a, a, a adults, parents, adults in general, can take the steps to protect kids, and that's by having conversation, conversations with kids' caregivers about the body safety rules. Okay, so let's start by identifying some of the body safety rules. 
Actually, before I do that, can I ask you, Debbie, when you left the workshop, is there are there one or two of the body safety rules that you learned that stick out the most to you? Um, well, yeah. Since leaving? We have a lot more conversation. I, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I tend to be fairly open about things in general okay. with my kids. But I think we have a lot more conversations. My kids are two and four about private parts and who can touch whose, um, that you can touch your own and the exact circumstances under which, you know, which is pretty much just your parents changing your diaper or, you know, a doctor with a parent in the room. Um, but, like, my kids, we have conversations in the bathtub and just very regularly about private parts um, and who can touch yeah. whose. Yeah. And, so, oh, and, one, and the other. The bath, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, well, okay. Just that, um, that we say, please, or we say, don't touch my body. If somebody's tickling you or doing anything to your body and you don't like it, and that's, I am so grateful my daughter's at a preschool where they have the same approach, um, so she's learning that at school too, and so they will say that to each other, to us, to, you know, family, they'll say, don't okay. touch my body, and I have to say, uh, the adults respond so well. First of all, they immediately stop touching the body, and they're like, okay, you know, no one has ever <laughs> tried to not follow that, and then... Also, um, it's just something that – so it really works, and I've never had anyone be, like, mad or offended. So, You mean family members? Yeah, no family members have ever been offended by the kids saying that. So, okay. it so sounds a little – Sounds what? Well, just – it might sound a little direct to some people, but I just wanted to – That's what of, you want. That's what you want. And, and nobody <laughs> ever was ever, like, mad at your child for saying it or any, in right. my experience. So you've taught your kids rules around touching. No one touches mm -hmm. your private areas, your genitals. You don't touch other people's. You can touch your own in private. And so those are some of the touching rules. But since you brought up this point about none of the people in your family have been offended, I imagine some of the listeners are wondering or thinking, well, in my family they would be, mm -hmm. right? And I get that question all the time. So you're teaching your child don't touch my body if they don't want to be touched. Or another way we can teach kids is I'm the boss of my body. Mm -hmm. I'm not the boss. Kids are not the boss of you in dinner time and bedtime, but they are the boss of their body. But what if there is a family member who gets offended, you know, and says, mm -hmm. what do you mean you don't touch my body? You're three. I get to hug and kiss you anytime I want or some attitude like that. You haven't experienced any of that? I think when I originally talked about with grandparents about how kids, our kids get to choose if they want to hug or kiss people, hello, goodbye, and that includes us, I think at first that was a little strange to people because that's really not the cultural norm. And right. so for each person that we, you know, it's really been mostly family members that we talk to about that, I explain to them why. And that really helps. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So you you are fortunate, and that's how we always hope it goes. For anyone listening who might not be that fortunate, where you have family members who really resist this, I would just encourage to approach it from a perspective of consent. Mm -hmm. That if we want 20-year-olds in college to know how to give and receive consent, with all the date rape we know occurs in college and in high school, 
we start with two-year-olds and one-year-olds. We start by teaching them exactly what you're doing, which is, and this is another body safety rule, you get to choose who you kiss and hug, if you do, when you do, when you don't. It's your body. You're the boss of it. It's your choice. And the prevention team I'm going to talk about in a few minutes are the adults in a child's life who, who support that and who, who nurture that. So these are some of the examples of some of the body safety rules, touching rules, forced affection slash consent, um, other important ones. I'm wondering if you've discussed this. Do you have a two- and four-year-old, you said? I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with a four-year-old, definitely the body safety rule is around um, taking pictures of genitals, showing pictures, videos, and we call that, when kids are much older, pornography. Mm-hmm. With little children, we don't have to use the word pornography, but we can teach a basic body safety rule that goes something like no one's allowed to take pictures of your vagina, of your penis, of the private parts of your body, of your genitals, or show you pictures of naked people. Mm -hmm. And you don't take pictures of other people's private parts. It's just like we wear our bike helmet and we put our seatbelt on. We teach them about taking pictures because... Child porn, which my April newsletter is going to address in full for the whole month of April for Child Abuse Prevention Month, child porn is epidemic. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier to talk to an eight or nine year old about pornography when you started at four. Mm-hmm. It's a basic concept we don't take pictures. And what we know is the average child, the average age of a child who is exposed to pornography on a device is somewhere between eight and 11 years old. Wow. Right? So I will tell you that your child will be exposed to pornography on a device. It's going to happen. So unless you live on an island where there's no devices, okay, it's part of the culture of of our culture now. Mm-hmm. And so to have proactive conversations with kids, at these young ages, and then these conversations obviously change as kids get older. And with older kids, you can talk about what pornography is and um, the legalities and illegalities of it and how it, you know, just the nuances of pornography, which I'm not going to get totally into. People can um, read it in the newsletter if they're interested. But it starts at around age three and four with the body safety rule. We don't take pictures of mm-hmm. private parts. Yeah. That makes sense? It does. Yeah. And then just a couple of others are, you know, giving child, body safety rules, giving children privacy when they want it. Some kids could care less about having privacy, and they'll run around naked all day, and then there are two-year-olds who demand the door shut when they poop. And the reason that giving privacy to children is so important is that often, especially adolescent sex offenders, will use the breakdown of privacy among siblings to groom, Mm -hmm. like barging into showers or bathrooms and not giving privacy. So privacy is a big, you know, topic in homes to make it comfortable for everyone, whatever's Mm -hmm. comfortable for family members. And then you, you mentioned another, which is giving your child refusal skills to say, no, don't touch my body, or no, I don't want to do that. Stop tickling me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess lastly to mention teaching kids the no secret rule that in our family we don't keep secrets 
and teaching them the difference between a secret and a surprise. That we do keep surprises, which are thing, things that come out eventually, like holiday presents and birthday presents and everyone's happy, um, but defining for kids the difference. that secrets are things that people may ask you to never, ever tell. And it's always okay to tell, and I won't punish you, and I love you no matter what. And to keep these kinds of conversations flowing and alive in home all the time. And I love that you gave an example, Debbie, of how you do that in the bath, like around touching rules in the bathtub. And those are teachable moments. Mm-hmm. You know, and kids provide teachable moments, thankfully, all the time. <laughs> They're ample teachable moments whether, you know, your child's 4 or 12. And like I said, also, the conversations will change given your child's age. You're not going to teach, you're not going to, you know, stay with no one's ever allowed to touch your private parts when you're talking to a Mm 14-year-old. You know, the conversation changes. No one touches the private areas of your body without your permission, Mm -hmm. depending on your values and where you're coming from in that, you know, light. Mm Mm-hmm. So does that give you a sense of some of the conversations and boundaries parents can give their kids? Yeah, it definitely does. And that's I think that's really helpful for people to start looking for those teachable moments when these things can come up and you can start, um, you know, setting that standard that even things like the secret keeping that because secrets can be fun, you know, that whisper game, that kind of secret, the surprise, I think you would call it a surprise. Um, But like when they do talk to you to have that stance of, you know, being open to it and glad that they talk to you about hard things so that they feel right. comfortable talking to you as a parent when the hard stuff does come up. Right. Yeah. And, and the best way a kid, the, the best chance a child has to talk to their parent about the hard stuff is when a child knows their parents are listening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So listening is big key. And I guess this, we can move right into the, you know, you asked me a few minutes ago, what can parents do to mm-hmm. reduce the risk? So teach the body, learn the facts, put it on your radar, teach the body safety rules, and then most importantly, and I hope people are still staying with the podcast because though we're, you know, getting to this toward the end here, this is the most important part of prevention for kids, which is the adult responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you know the body safety, some of the body safety rules, and Now's the time to build your prevention team of adult caregivers and teens. And the prevention team, what I mean by that is a a team of people who surround your children, who love your children, care for them, and they all agree to be part of following the body safety rules, um, using teachable moments, and keeping kids safe. So the first thing a parent might need to do is ask him or herself, or I, I like to ask people in the workshops, are you willing to be a little uncomfortable so your children never have to? And what I mean by that is are you willing, like you mentioned earlier, Debbie, are you willing to have conversations about sexual abuse? Call it body safety if that's easier to soften it. Are you willing to have these conversations with all caregivers, no matter how uncomfortable the conversation may be? because these conversations are what significantly reduces a child mm-hmm. from, from experiencing sex abuse. From 30-plus years of studying this stuff, 
We can lock offenders up in jail who, who uh, offend. You know, that is not prevention. Background checks are not prevention. Prevention is when you tell your babysitter that your kids' private parts don't get touched, they don't need help toileting, or they do need help toileting. We don't have secrets in our family. Please feel free to eat any of the food you want in my house, but please don't go in my bedroom. No sexting, or and I mean no texting when you're bathing my child. Whatever your boundaries are, whatever expectations you have, that you openly and honestly and positively communicate those with the babysitter, mm-hmm. with the coach, with your kids' teachers, with faith leaders, with your family members, with whoever you drop your child off with and drive away from, that's part of your that person's part of your prevention team, and you have an opportunity to invite that person onto it. So what I'm helping parents do is build this prevention team, have these conversations prior to deciding if this person is part of your team, and seeing how that conversation goes. You know, is the person patronizing you? Are they on the same page with you? It sounds like your family members and so far, Debbie, have been really on board, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if Grandma says, oh, this is ridiculous, I can have a kiss anytime I want it. She's only three. She doesn't get to decide. You have a little more work to do, Mm -hmm. right? And this is, you know, deliberate parenting to choose for yourself, regardless of other people's feelings, who you put your kids in the care of. Mm -hmm. You know, we're teaching kids, hopefully, that it's not their job to manage the feelings of other people because that's an offender's dream, the kid who feels they need to manage others' feelings. That's true for you, too. It's not your job to manage your family's feelings. doesn't mean you can't be kind and nice and all of that, but if the coach gets upset because you set a boundary or grandma gets upset or grandpa, that's not your problem. And I don't mean to be crass there. It's just this is prevention. That's right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that the adults need to be the ones handling this stuff. And if you as a parent, for instance, have – you need to be the one to have the courage to have this uncomfortable conversation um, because we are the adults here. And so if it is awkward or if it's hard or uncomfortable, yes. But to me it helps to just think I'm the one who has to be willing to do that. Right, because your kids can't. They don't know how to do it yet. Yeah. And, yeah, and the good news is when you have these conversations, good things can happen, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm trying to, in my work, normalize this conversation. Exactly. You know, not be such a big deal. Like, would you, would you not hand somebody a car seat if they were driving your child? I mean, you, you probably wouldn't do, you probably wouldn't fret over that all night long, right? Or if your child has an allergy to a food or a substance that could really make them sick or even is life-threatening, would you drop your child off at that play date or at school without discussing that allergy? When I ask people this in my workshops, no way would a parent do that. Mm-hmm. But we, we fail to talk about body safety because there's all this stigma about it, you know, because it's about genitals and it's about fear of blaming. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the good news is when you have a conversation with a caregiver about body safety rules, 
you get to do two things. One, you get to match your expectations and invite that person to be part of this really cool prevention team. And inadvertently, you're letting the person know that your child is off limits. Mm -hmm. So if this person has a sexual behavior problem with kids, you're basically saying, not my kid. Yeah. I think that that someone would... Someone who was potentially going to do something like that would not want to get involved in a situation where they knew the parent would say something like that. Right, right. They would just, so that would not be I'll the use, situation. They would do that. Right. I, I use the example in sometimes with people. Imagine you're sitting across from a potential new nanny or babysitter or even a potential administrator in a school that you're going to send your child to preschool. And you're asking some questions about body safety and learning the policies at the school and learning how the babysitter addresses um, secrets with kids and just talking about child sex abuse. Again, soften it with body safety. And you're discussing this. And this person sitting across from you has a sexual behavior problem with kids. Let's say it's the nanny. Mm -hmm. What do you think the person does? What's likely to happen? They will probably look elsewhere or, yeah, yeah. Now, again, there's no guarantee, but when I pose this question to offenders, men and women alike, because women molest children as well, typically across the board, they say, I'll run for the hills. Mm -hmm. And that's my job is to communicate that to parents and empower all parents to know that you have a right to have these conversations. You have the right to set these boundaries and you know, you're doing this on behalf of your child and your kid is a lucky kid if you can do this for him or mm-hmm. There was one last thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap up that I remember thinking was really interesting from the workshop, um, which is the relationship between teaching kids about sexual development and the reduction and the risk of childhood sexual abuse. Um, would you mind just saying a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really important point because... You know, just like you nurture your children's um, nutritional development and their physical development and spiritual and uh, educational, all the ways that you nurture development, sexual development is another part that is just as important and often parents wave out because they're scared or they don't know what language to use or scared to, you know, break children's innocence. And it's just so important that a parent is their child's first accurate resource um, for sexual development information and, you know, answering kids' questions when they ask. You know, when a child asks a question, they're ready to know the answer, you know, in an age-appropriate way. And so the relationship is that between the reduction of risk and educating kids is that kids who have accurate information about their own body and about other people's bodies and where conversations about sexuality have already been normalized, they're typically better able to, one, recognize inappropriate sex behavior by other kids, by other teens, or by other adults, because they've talked about it and they know what's appropriate and not. And those kids have language for talking with trusted adults about uncomfortable or abusive situations if they happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Children who are sexually abused often later say, when you talk to an adult survivor, that they didn't even know what was happening to them was wrong. So 
that's one one way. And then the other um, piece of the relationship, often, offenders have often told me, you know, they've said, I look for kids who don't know about sexual stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and I know that's hard to hear, but it, it just means that, you know, parents who do talk with their children's caregivers about sexual development, they're able to invite those, like I said before, those caregivers onto their family's prevention team and let the world basically know my child is off limits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're nurturing your child, they, they appear and they are more confident. They know about their bodies. They know what's right and wrong. And it's usually a vulnerability. I mean, it's not a vulnerability that abusers see in a child. They typically stay away from kids who have a lot of accurate information. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and I think if we can help kids be more comfortable talking about this this kind of issue, maybe they won't have some of the same, you know, taboo and secrecy around it as, you know, if it's uncomfortable for adults, right. um, it's uncomfortable for them. So if we can right. break that, that pattern. And right. I think... And so, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that you have some resources that you mention in the workshop, in the book, and on your website that are things like books that, that parents can use to guide conversations like that at different developmental stages. Absolutely. And yeah. that really can help because... If you're going to if you're going to nurture children's sexual development, you need to understand the difference between normal sexual exploration in kids and what's concerning. Mm-hmm. Because kids are sexual beings, and they will look at their own private parts and other people's and explore sexually. And it's so important parents don't overreact and panic and know the difference. So, right. in two sentences, normal sexual development and play and behavior is when the kids are. You know, they're lighthearted and they're close in age and it's consensual. Mm-hmm. There's the absence of coercion. And when it becomes concerning sexual behavior in kids is when children have advanced sexual knowledge. They know too much for their age. Mm-hmm. You know, and when there's a three- to four-year age difference between the kids, it's no longer um, considered normal sexual exploration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting, yeah. Well, I would really encourage parents, people who are listening, who want to learn more. You know, I just really appreciate people for listening to this topic this far into the podcast especially and just that you kind of stayed with this this topic and were willing to learn. And I hope people will learn more by reading the book, by going to a workshop if you happen to be in Denver or doing an online workshop with Feather if you're outside of Denver. Um the website again is parentingsafechildren.com, and we will link to it on our web page for this show notes for this show, um, which is offtheclockpsych.com. Um, so again, thank you. And I really, you know, it's Child Abuse Prevention Month. I really hope that folks who've listened to this will help spread the word too to talk to other parents, talk to other people, share this podcast. You know, grab a couple of buddies and do the workshop um, just to help spread the word on this and help people, let people know about this. And I think that all adults who care about children, we all need to work together to help protect kids. So, Feather, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to do this and to do the work that you do. I really... Truly, I just think it's so important, and I'm really happy that I was able to help spread the word and um, hope that some other people feel inspired as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You too. Please. Okay. Take (laughs) care. You too. 
Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.